Well, it's good to see you all this morning, and being together on Christmas Day with your church family is a real privilege. It's something we only get to do once every seven years, so I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, and if you had a piece of pie for breakfast, or you snuck a couple pieces of Christmas candy, I'm the last one in the world to judge. Uh, so I'm glad you're here either way. I hope uh, the rest of your day goes well. But right now, I'm excited about the opportunity to share the word with you. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 1. Very familiar words. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him bring, him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, of course, we all know that story. Even if you're not a church-going person, you've heard the story of the wise men and their, their journey to find the Christ child and We've grown up, those of us who grew up in church, uh, a lot of us boys at some point or another wore a towel turban and, and dressed up as a wise man and carried a little box that was meant to represent gold or frankincense and myrrh. We grew up being told that's how our tradition of giving Christmas presents started. But what I want to talk about today is not that. I want to talk about the bad guy. The bad guy in the story who's mentioned in the first sentence, in the days of Herod the king. It's interesting when you go to Israel... As our guide told us, you go thinking you're going to walk in the steps of Jesus, and you do, but you feel more like, more like you're walking in the footsteps of Herod, because Jesus didn't build palaces and fortresses and, 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 and storehouses, but Herod did. Herod built stuff all over the Holy Land, and a lot of it is still there. A lot of it's been uncovered and, and, and excavated, and you see it everywhere. This, it's sort of a monument to his life. Uh, if... If you think about it, when, when Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem that first Christmas, and she was, I love the way the King James puts it, great with child. You think about the, the sense of, of urgency, the sense of stress. Any of you who are parents, remember, the first baby is always a little scarier than the others because you don't know what's going to happen. And here's this, this young girl, maybe 13 or 14, and she's just about ready to give birth. And they arrive at Bethlehem. And one of the things they would have seen that you may never have heard about was a palace, something spectacular, southeast of town. It, it would have looked like a volcano with a castle on top. This was called the Herodium. Herod built 15 palaces, 15. So if you know anybody that's got a lake house, tell them they're not that impressive. Um, <laughs> Fifteen palaces, this is the only one he named after himself. 
About 25 years before the birth of Christ, he ordered the engineers in Bethlehem, engineers to, to cut the tops off of all the surrounding hills. And they, they carried the rock and, and the dirt from those hills and put it on top of one hill, made it the highest mountain anywhere around and built on top of it. He wanted it visible from Jerusalem, and it was, seven miles away. He wanted it to be the most impressive thing in the Middle East, and it was. Ended up, uh, the Herodium was 50 feet higher than the Great Pyramid of Giza, and I think he knew that. When you get there, and it's, most of it's been excavated today, you can see there were three different levels of the Herodium. Um, so I want to show you a picture from the top. Uh, that's, we're looking from the top of the Herodium, and that's Bethlehem off in the distance. So that's, that's where Mary and Joseph were. Somewhere in there is the place where Jesus was born. Uh, I think the next picture you're going to see is a scale. Mo- no, that's the theater. So on the bottom level, ground level, it was lo- sort of like the ancient version of a, of a country club, except with no golf course. Uh, they had, they had a, a pool the size of a football field. They had a, a bathhouse. They had banquet halls. They had gardens. Uh, and then halfway up, uh, halfway up, you see this. This is the theater that he built halfway up the hill. It seated 400 people. I know it doesn't look like it there, but 400 people could sit there and watch any kind of presentation, music, plays, anything like that. We'll talk more about that theater in just a second. The next picture is a scale model of it. So next picture, yeah. There's a scale model of what the whole complex looked like. Now you see the top. The top is double-walled. There's a watchtower that, that was about seven stories high. And inside, there's bathhouses, there's banquet halls, there's salons. There's everything you need to entertain your, your, your guests and impress them. And speaking of guests, let me show you one more picture. See, these are the steps we climbed to get up to the top. Those steps didn't exist in the ancient world, so you had to just walk up the side of a hill. And so we thought, because, you know... We lazy American tourists, it was kind of hard for us to get up to the top. And we thought, you know, the elite of Jerusalem, when they would come here, they would have been sweating. They would have been gasping for breath because they're not used to hard work. And Herod, I'm sure, had a litter of slaves to carry him up to the top. And so every time he would have a party and people would come to to climb to the top to meet him, it was just a subtle way of saying, I'm above you. You got to work hard to get to my level. That's Herod. That's the kind of man he was. Um, One day, there was a VIP coming to visit Jerusalem. It was Marcus Agrippa, the second in command in Rome, second only to Caesar Augustus. And Herod, one of his life's goals was to impress the Romans. They were the source of his power. He wanted to keep them happy. And so uh, he ordered a luxury box to be built at the theater at Herodium, a luxury box, you know, like you'd have at a a football game today. Uh, He brought in the best uh, builders, the best artists, the best craftsmen, and they they didn't just build a box for him and his guests to sit in. They they decorated it with frescoes and tile floors. It was magnificent. Um, It's been discovered. It's, It's in the process of being restored, but you can see it today. The interesting thing is, Marcus Agrippa came, they watched the show together, and then as soon as it was over, Herod said, bury it. Bury the luxury box. It was only used that one time. And the reason he buried it was because he wanted to be buried on the side of that hill. He wanted his tomb to be on the side of that hill, and he didn't want anything else to distract from his tomb. The glory of Herod had to shine forth. 
Herod, like I said, built 15 different palaces. It's the only one he named for himself. Uh, They were meant to impress people. They were meant to make people feel a sense of awe, but they were also meant to serve as a safe house for him. See, the Herodium was just two hours' journey from Jerusalem. If there was a revolt, if there was an invasion, he could be safe on top of that mountaintop fortress. Didn't matter what happened to the rest of the people. He really cared about himself. He's on high ground. He's behind double walls. Everything's fine. And that's the kind of man he was. You know, Herod was called Herod the Great for a reason. His building projects kept a lot of Israelites in in employment for many years. And and he did manage to stay uh, on top for decades in a place where it's hard to rule. But in the end, it was all about Herod. Every decision he made was calculated to benefit himself. At one point, along the course of his life, he had three of his sons killed and his favorite wife as well because he was just so paranoid that they might be angling to steal power from him. About the time he was building that tomb for himself, he set in motion a plot, a horrific plot, that on the day that he died, uh, assassins would go out and kill the most prominent citizens of Israel so that he would be guaranteed there wouldn't be rejoicing the day he died but mourning instead. Now, thankfully, that plan never took place. They, they refused to carry it out. But an even more horrific plan that we know about from the Scriptures did take place in Bethlehem itself. Think about Joseph as he's leading his young wife up to the town of Bethlehem, and he sees that big palace looming over him. Just think about the fact that just a few months earlier, he had found out that she was pregnant. They weren't married yet. Chances are they didn't know each other all that well. Although Nazareth was a small town, you know, boys and girls didn't really mix. And so have you ever known a teenage boy who thought that his girl was cheating on him? Have you ever been a teenage boy who thought that his girl was cheating on him? I think a lot of us have been in that position. We can understand how angry Joseph must have been. And in fact, he was within his rights to have her publicly shamed or even stoned to death. Didn't happen a lot, but it it was done. It was legal. And yet he decided, and we don't know how long it took him to make this decision, he decided that he would divorce her quietly. The word divorce is is intentional. In the ancient world, an engagement was much more formal. You couldn't just say, give me my ring back. You had to go through a legal process. Joseph meant to do it quietly. What that means is he wasn't going to tell anyone why they were breaking up. He wasn't going to say, because she's been with another man, because she's pregnant by someone else. He wasn't going to say that. And you know what that meant? That meant that he was going to go away and everyone was going to assume that he got her pregnant and then left. She would be the object of sympathy. The whole community would rally around her and they'd curse him for a deadbeat dog and he could never come back to Nazareth again. Now, why would he make such a sacrifice for a girl he barely knew, for a baby he thought he'd never see? Well, that's why Matthew 119 calls Joseph a righteous man, because that's righteousness. Righteousness is not just coming to church. Righteousness is not just, just following some rules. Righteousness is putting others ahead of yourself. And as for Mary, she was no silly girl. Uh, we're going to look at this next week when I start a new series, but Luke 1, 46 through 55 is a, a song that Mary sang. At the moment when she encountered her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth called her the mother of my Lord, 
She was so overjoyed, she, she recited this song. We call it the Magnificat. It's the, the Latin word for magnify. Uh, she was probably preparing that and thinking of it all the way on the walk to Elizabeth's house. And it's sort of based on something, a song that was sung by Hannah back in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. But if you read it, and we will next week, you'll see that it's a prophecy. It's talking about this baby that I'm going to give birth to is going to change things. He's going to bring down the mighty from their thrones. He's going to send the rich away empty. He's going to turn things upside down. We know that Herod never would have done what Joseph did. Herod never would have put somebody else ahead of himself. He was all about himself. He wanted the Jews to love him, so he built them this massive, lavish temple, the greatest religious facility the world had ever seen. He wanted the Romans to love him, so he built whole cities like Caesarea dedicated to them. He put, he put Roman-style architecture all over the nation of Israel, even though it irritated the Israelites. He wanted all the money, all the power, and all the love. And his order to the wise men, as we know, was a lie. His intention was not to worship the Messiah. His intention was to eliminate the Messiah because he didn't want competition. Think about the paranoia of a man who is close to his own death. In fact, he would die within a year or two who cannot fathom the idea that there's a baby in the nation who's destined to be king, who's not his son. So what happened to him? Of course, the wise men heard. The the angel spoke to them. They went home their own way. And he sent squads of soldiers to Bethlehem to find the child. Every child two and under, every male child two and under was killed. We don't like to think about that, but that's part of the Christmas story too. Because God intervened, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were able to escape. And shortly after, Herod formed an affliction in his body that was so painful and so humiliating that he tried to end his own life, but was stopped by his attendants. And he died in agony. Decades later, uh, the Jewish revolt took place as Israelites revolted against Rome. Rebels occupied the Herodium and, and used it as a fortress. They held out for quite a long time. One of the first things they did when they occupied the Herodium was they went down to that lavish tomb that Herod had built for himself. You notice I didn't show you a picture of that. It's because it doesn't exist anymore. The rebels smashed it to bits. They, unco- they, they, they dug up Herod's bones and they strewed them across the hillside. And the animals came and carried them away. Mary's prophecy came true. The Lord has brought down the mighty and has sent the rich away empty. And you know, you don't want to think about it this way, but if we're honest, all of us have a little Herod in us. We want what we want, and we'll hurt people to get it. And if we're honest, if we're truly honest, we can think of times when that inner Herod came out, when we did hurt somebody else to get what we wanted, when we did shove someone aside, when we didn't get our way. And to make matters worse, there's that part of us that looks up at those palaces other people have built and we want what they have. They've gotten rich. They've built these huge online platforms. They've gotten elected. They have the money. They have the power. They have the love and respect that we want. But in the end, they all die, just like Herod did. And the bad news is, so do we. Merry Christmas. Hey. (laughs)
Our inner Herod is so much stronger than our better nature that we often fail. We're just destined to destroy ourselves. One bad decision at a time, unless a miracle happens. Thank God a miracle did happen. Because the baby born in the shadow of the Herodium is exactly the miracle we need. See, I don't have an exciting testimony from human perspective. I wasn't in a street gang. I I didn't murder anybody. I've never spent time in jail. I could never have a rap career for obvious reasons. My testimony is fairly dull, and yet it's just as much a miracle as a person who was saved on death row because I trampled underfoot the Son of God because I went my own way. And yet, and yet, the Christ child who grew up to live a perfect sinless life, to live the life I should have lived and die the death I deserve to die, that Jesus came into my heart and has never stopped working on it. He was a carpenter after all, and his renovation process project in my life is ongoing. So pardon the mess. There's renovation happening here. And I'm not where I need to be, but I'm so much further than I was before. And that's the exciting thing about being a child of God. Number one, you know there's a plan for your life. Number two, you know that you're not going to stay the same. And even as, as we reach that midpoint of life and start heading downward where we know, you know, it's not getting any better physically, but we know that inside, though outwardly we're fading away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And that process never ends until we reach heaven and it's finally complete because he who began a good work in me and in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. My own testimony is this. Every time I indulge my inner Herod, things get worse. I mean, let's be clear. There's usually some short-term payoff, but it's sort of like eating too much candy, right? It's fun while it lasts, and then there's a long period of regret, a long period where you're like, you know, I'd like to just die right now, and that's what it is to indulge the inner Herod. It feels good in the moment, and then there's this long period where you wonder, why did I do that? I'm not that person. Oh, actually you are. Actually I am. But every time I choose to put someone else first, every time I choose the path of of righteousness, the path of the cross, the path of Jesus, I always walk away thinking, why don't I do that every time? Because it always works. It's always the right thing. It's always something I'm glad I did. That's my testimony. What about you? See, the Christmas carol, it says this line in the third verse, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Has he been born in you? He came to Bethlehem in the shadow of this monument to selfishness, and he came to Bethlehem and changed the world through self-sacrifice. Has that happened in your life? I'm not saying, have you become perfect? I'm saying, has he been born in your heart where now there's this transformation happening slowly, bit by bit, you're becoming a little less Herod and a little more Jesus every day you walk alongside him? Because that's what salvation looks like. I got news for you. Salvation is not just, I prayed a prayer, I got dunked, and I'm going to heaven when I die. Salvation is Jesus inside of you, making you more like him every single day. Has that started yet? 
Because if not, you're going to have a chance for that to happen. And man, what better testimony could there be than saying, Christmas Day, I gave my life to Jesus. And what about the rest of us who would say, I know I'm a Christian, but if I'm honest, old Herod is still alive and well in me, and he seems to be winning right now. Well, I suspect that's true of a lot of Christians. If it weren't true of a lot of Christians, our nation would be in a very different state than it is. So revival looks like God's people coming back to the point of saying, it's time to come back to Christ and get honest about myself and experience renewal. It takes a lot of courage to admit that you need it. It takes a lot of courage to admit that Herod is kicking your tail and you need Christ to take over. But I'm asking you to do it. I'm praying you will do it. And I'm, I'm praying that Jesus will reclaim your heart, that you will ask him to do that today if that needs to happen. Let him be reborn in you today.